Welcome to Beyond and I, Northern Ireland's leading and greatest political podcast. Today, you're joined by myself, James Mayen, and as always, my co-host, Matthew Spires. Very happy to be here, James, as always. How are you keeping? Uh, you know, just living life. Just trying to... It's been horrible weather this week. Like, I mean, everyone probably knows that. It's been horrific. Felt, I've been like, I've come home twice now looking like a, a drowned rat, which isn't what you want. But sure, we deal Fantastic. with it. We keep on going. I know. Well, we just had a bite of great weather there, so it only serves us right for, for enjoying it. <laughs> it always but happens. Yeah. You get like one nice, really nice week of weather, and then it just absolutely turns on you. Ugh. Does you in. Does you in. But look, that's a big week this week in terms of politics here. Um, a lot of big moves, um, leadership changes, not just for one party, but for two. So we'll, we'll dive into that. And I think we'll, we'll start with the, the Democratic Unionist Party. Arlene Foster, out of a job of being leader of the party, soon to be no longer first minister within the next couple of weeks. And Edwin Poots is uh, is now the leader of the DUP, but he's not our first minister. What do you think uh, Poots means for the party? And essentially, what does he mean for Northern Ireland? Well, I mean, it's been interesting how the uh, how the talk has been going. I know that apparently he hasn't even talked to Arlene Foster yet, is, is what they kind of drama has been that he that despite the fact that you know he's going to be replacing her and that surely they've worked together i'd imagine a fair amount they have not even shared a word kind of in this whole process and, and transition um which i feel like is maybe quite telling in terms of how things have been left off and how things are being picked up between the two of them um but then at the same time i think it's been a relatively interesting period just to kind of look at what the messaging's been from like the the Unionist, Democratic Unionist Party and also just uh, Poots himself kind of continually barreling on about uh, we need to see a nice not un- united front in unionism but then also kind of talking about how he's going to it, it's been pretty equivocal on the fact that he wants to get rid of the NI protocol that that's been uh, it's been made kind of the, the forefront of his tenure it looks like is going to be we're getting rid of this thing this is not going to be uh, in place it, by the time that I leave and that there's very much just looking like a, a bit of a stereotypical DUP, but with like slightly more, I don't even know if it's possible for them to be even more direct than they were before, but it kind of feels like that it might be a little bit more direct in terms of the messaging of what they want and a little bit less and kind of like the, I feel like before there was maybe like a couple of th- everyone kind of knew the crack, but it wasn't necessarily said out loud all the time mm, where I feel like yeah. right now we're just kind of seeing like very much a forward approach of just like, this is what we want. It's going to happen. And we're just going to tell you how we want it. And that's it. I don't know. How yeah. do you feel? Well, no, I think I, I can't remember which MLA, DUP MLA said it. But uh, when criticizing the protocol, their main complaint was, well, if it was going to be a border down, a land border between the Republic and the Nor- Northern Ireland, that would have been all right. But, you know, separating us from Great Britain, which, you know, I think the running commentary was for a while that's always what the DUP wanted even when publicly they they said otherwise yeah and for, and for them to publicly come out and say no we would have been all right with a, with a land border was you know a bit you know a bit crazy yeah but I, I, 
we talked about this last week when we were talking about Poots, and I want to put it again to you. And do you think he is a pragmatist? No, because it's easy. Really, because if you even look at this week alone, he's come out and said like he sees himself as Irish. You know, if, when it comes to to gay people, you know, he, he thinks they probably can't be cured. Which I know, I know for that, a lot of people, that's still a highly unacceptable opinion. Um, it is a bit, it is outdated. But for him to to change that much, concern how his party just recently voted on that issue. Mm. Do you think he's trying to maybe spread the net, get those more liberal, dare I say, liberal members of the DUP back on track, back on board? I've just found it a little bit confusing watching him say these things. Kind of there, like a, it it feels almost like he's is he, most of the things he's kind of in a halfway house of of the kind of concessions he's made. Where I think he's made concessions, but then it feels like even those concessions are barely, but <laughs> they barely have any even commitment to them. I think that the things that you're talking about right there are kind of just nice things to be saying. I don't think there's anything backing them up to any noticeable degree. In terms of him actually making any kind of concessions or any kind of uh, pragmatic decision making, you know, just by going out and saying he's Irish, well, that's something that unionists have been saying for a hundred years now. I don't really understand how that's a pragmatic approach to it. Um, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm being too cynical about him, but uh, I just don't see how that's meant to be like a big thing for a DEP person to say whenever the general message from like most unionists is like, yeah, we accept. But there's like we are part Irish, like, or that they accept that there's like an Irish identity to some degree, but they just don't think that that conflicts necessarily with being British as well. Yeah, but, you know, for what loads of people touted as the hardline wing of the DUP now being on par, I, I think to some extent it is a, in terms of a ceremonial uh, role, at least he's making that slight effort, I think. No, I don't well, it wouldn't be a podcast about your son. So I'm, I'm glad you're you're keeping on on brand for this week as well. Well, I mean, it's better than just us just being like, yeah, we both agree. <laughs> and let's move on. And I talk about something else. No, no, no. It's it's fine that we disagree. I enjoy yeah. it. But look, um, first minister. Then he's decided he's not taking it up. He's been quite clear on that from the start. Um, you know, we know we have Paul Gavin, name Marvin Story, yeah. and Paula Bradley who has been quoted as the most liberal member of the party. All three are in are in running contention. Do you have a preference for, for who would um, be first minister? Um, or do you think there's any real difference between the three? I guess it really depends on how the DUP kind of moves forward, whether um, Poots kind of sees it as, you know, kind of a hands-off kind of thing from him in terms of being a DUP leader, whether he kind of feels like he's kind of more maybe would be a, a background player or whether he feels like he's very much kind of the person who would pull the strings on the first minister uh position because if it is you know the pulling the strings position then it's like well there's not gonna be any difference it's gonna be you know we're gonna listen to what the dup hierarchy says and this guy's above me in the hierarchy so we're gonna just listen to him or if it's gonna be more of like a hands-off like well let's see we'll we'll give you a little bit of leeway and you're kind of first which is what what is weird about having you know somebody's different big first minister and the party leader is like you don't really know where the power is coming from where, where the power is really pulling from unless you've like really got like good knowledge or good you know internal communications within the party whenever you say those three people i do think there probably are it is you know some political differences between each of them um not necessarily massive differences or not necessarily like we're talking 
completely new directions for the party. But I think there is, I think obviously Bradley would be the one that stands out there. Paula Bradley, who's, you know, been slightly more active in terms of, you know, paying forward to things like PMBs and trying to like make, you know, actual, you know, change that looks slightly more positive than um, the the other things that DUP maybe has been associated with for times. Uh, and I think that would be good to see, you know, someone in the party who's actually clearly had like ideas and has wanted to bring things forward and do things as opposed to like say a Mervyn story who feels a little bit like a like a guy who doesn't necessarily come forward with ideas he just kind of is a party member and kind of pulls the party line uh and possibly the same with Gavin as well uh, Gavin would worry me to the extent that that definitely would maybe signal the idea that Poots is just kind of you know he's just going to be making the actual decisions because I feel like he if <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you'd agree you would agree to some degree that you know they're you know, they've shared an office for so long and they're probably good mates, I'd imagine. And that that dynamic would possibly suggest that Poots has a decent bit of power in terms of the first minister role if, if Given was in. Yeah. It's a very long answer. But, yeah. No, I think it's a good one. And just maybe backing up on the Given point, I think it's fair to say, like, Given is Poots' protege. You know, it's been yeah. with him for a good while. They share the same office, both in Lagan Valley. It's, they're always, they're always seen together. So it's, yeah, I think I think with a given uh, as first minister, it would definitely signal signal, you know, Poots is in control; he's here to stay. There's one power source, but maybe with uh, Bradley, you might see, you know, it would be a bit more unclear, a bit more opaque then, and where it's yeah. coming from. So I think you, that's a really good point there, actually. It, what, what do you think is going to happen in terms of Poots? Uh, how is he going to like navigate being the DP leader while not being first minister? It's going. It's going to be difficult. Definitely. Um, it means the party's not really speaking as one voice and it's maybe not as clear to the electorate who they, they should be looking up to. Uh, especially coming up to an election year, I think it's a very bold strategy. And maybe he knows something that we don't, which is very conceivable on why he's thinking this way. But if you definitely look at uh, his department, which is uh, the Department for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, the amount of press releases and policy work over the past month they have been putting out is seconds and on it's it makes the other it puts the other um you know no the other parts of the assembly to shame or the executive to shame just how much he's doing so i think he's he's just trying to build up as good work as a minister and leave and leave that department in in a better shape than he found it which you know he hasn't really had a long time to do that obviously with um when he coming back january 2020 Hmm. in terms of like as i said Managing that elect for the election next year is going to be difficult. Who's going to be the face of the party coming up? Is it going to be his face, or is it going to be the new first minister when they're doing press releases and do, giving the real big policy headlines? Who's going to be delivering that? Who's going to be seen as head of the party then? Because if the first minister starts, you know, getting more and more press attention than he is, he might be overshadowed. You'd have to assume maybe first minister would be surely. You would hope would be the person who gets kind of put to the front because that's the, I mean, both from the optics point of view, that's just the person you'd be seeing beside Michelle. So you would assume it would be yeah. just more obvious to push that person. Then it also that's the person who's actually a leader of, you know, leader of the country. I say with quotation marks around it, um, joint leader of the country of the the region, however you want to say it. Um, Especially with Michelle being, uh, you know, leader leader of the North and Sinn Féin, it's, yeah. it, it's a very clear image and a very clear 
way of saying this is the leader, this is who's running the country. And now with the DUP, I think that's going to be a bit more difficult. And actually, to some degree, I guess Michelle is kind of like actually, it's maybe like a bit of parody in terms of uh, each the two biggest parties' leadership. Because I think people have had the questions of Michelle where it's like, well, who in the Sinn Fein is like, is Michelle actually the one who's making decisions in terms of like Sinn Fein? Because, you know, obviously it used to be that people, people used to suggest that Jerry had, you know, quite a, quite a, I don't know how much I believed it, but uh, people used to say that Jerry had a bigger pull in the party whenever he was leader. Um, the Michelle, there was crossover wasn't there between uh, Jerry being a, a leader and Michelle being first minister, wasn't there? I think for a very, very short time. Yeah, for a short time. And I remember that being, you know, criticism that some people had. And now, you know, obviously with Sinn Féin being just a large organization, it just being a running in the North, now it has a North and South component. I guess both now kind of two, two biggest parties in Northern Ireland now have this kind of slightly strange power setup where it looks like there could be questions. I don't know if, how legitimate those questions are, but whether you could like, whether whether each side could come at the both or each side come at their opposition and be like, well, where's your power coming from? Where who's yeah. you know making the decisions here, um, which is interesting, I guess, and could be part to play in you know the, an election. I guess now might be a good time to move on to the kind of other new leader in the, the other new unionist leader that yeah. we know. Uh, oh, Beatty, on a post. Yeah. How do how do you feel about that? It's a it's a bold choice by the UUP, and I mm. think for the first time you're going to be seeing an ideological difference between the DUP and the UUP. No, it's not going to be as drastic as I think some commentators are making it out to be as BD is this liberal hero. It's going to come out and be the, be the man to lead left-wing unionism. No, he's not Northern Irish Jeremy Corbyn, is he? He's... No, no, he's far from it. No. Would be, you know, it's... You know, when you look at when you look at his recent speech there that he just made on Tuesday after he, you know, the party had essentially all but confirmed he was leader, nobody else had ran. He he came out and said the UUP might have to shrink before they can grow, which I thought was very bold language. Yeah. And maybe him putting out like this is the new wave, this is a new vision we're putting forward. If mm-hmm. we're gonna lose some people, that's what we have to do. But then he almost backtracked later on in the speech. He went on then to say those who are slightly more conservative, they have nothing to they have nothing to fear. We will have our disagreements, but I still want you to be part of this party. And the real the real killer, I think, for a lot of people, which it wasn't really picked up that much in the media. I think only one article I'd read had said it that you know for those unionists who are more centre ground or centre right, they have a home here. And I thought that was the key development in him saying centre left there, because yeah. if he said centre left, you're you're going to start putting a real pressure onto that alliance electorate. And for him not to say that, I think he's he's playing the game of trying to, to some extent, not scare off too many members of the of the of the UUP. Um, but obviously, with him being targeted as more liberal, I think maybe he's just riding on the headlines. Uh, Maybe to attract more some more of that left that left audience within unionism that are anti DUP and you know to the extent only recently has the UUP become more centre ground. Uh, is this kind of the I don't want to use a, a metaphor that no one's gonna gonna know, but I feel like most people are gonna know this. Is this like kind of the heel Mary the heel Mary in the last 
you know, minute of the game for EEP? Is this like, is this like the, to, to put that in more, you know, obvious terms, is this the last chance saloon? Is this like them just really going for someone else, going for like a different option because they're worried that if they don't, that they will, you know, possibly go out of existence sooner rather than later? I think, I think you're correct. Um, I, w- I wouldn't put it as drastic as that, though. I don't think you're <laughs> going to see the UUP disappear next election. Yeah, no. Um, I always think, yeah, I always think there's going to be a smaller unionist party. No, let me reword that. There will always be an alternative unionist party to the DUP, mm. unless the DUP does more radical changes, um, especially moving away from the more religious elements of it. So, no, I, I, I think it's, it's a new tactic for them, and I think it's been one they, they've tried before in the past um you know with mike nesbitt you know this isn't this isn't completely new um you know mike was seen as the great liberator of the of the uup only to be damned because he said he refused to transfer because he said he would happily transfer to the to the sdlp which looking now in 2021 i don't think that's an outrageous thing to say no definitely not you know, I think Mike was a bit ahead of his time for unionism. Um, I think Doug's riding on the perfect moment because I think that built up for just a, a center grind, center left. Yeah. You know, unionist party is for many people, it may not be their first choice, but maybe for transfers, you might see it. And for maybe some of those hotly contested seats they'll have with Alliance, they might just be able to scrape, scrape in in some constituencies. So it could, it could benefit them. Um, it's exciting. It's new. It's something different for the UUP uh, that we've seen for the last few years. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And if he loses seats, I don't think he'll be gone, which is good because it gives them time to grow and really set out a direction for the party. You know, it's I hate to use this analogy, but I'm I'm sick of football when managers don't have enough time to actually build a squad and they're chucked out after one season. Like you need to give them time to yeah. get their ideas across. Uh, I was gonna say something really, really dumb in comparison to that, but there is a there is a thing which maybe could be compared to politics that uh, whenever a manager, I think it it's there's some percentage of games whenever you start losing, I think it's whenever you drop below fifty or forty percent uh, in your record wise, managers never go back above that is kind of what. Oh. And, well, whenever you're in that job anyway, and you're not, mm. in an X job, maybe you'll find success, but like the general research which someone did said that you know once a manager drops below a certain level of results in in their uh, time at a club the very the majority is they will never you know get back up above that um and i wonder in politics if, if it's maybe the same if you like if you lose such like a level of leadership in your party how how do you kind of make your way back from losing the kind of a decent level of support without forever being kind of associated with your previous losses. I don't know. That's just, I, again, I guess it's just me trying to relate football to politics as I've tried to do it, even in my writing. Here, <laughs> <laughs> it's in that Brandon Rogers article. Brandon Rogers that. There you go. Um, yeah, but, I, like, uh, I like Doug. I like Doug a lot. I have time. I would quite like to stop seeing memes and all that on his Twitter about like him on a hoverboard or whatever it's called like outside of that uh, yes you, you hate politicians being personal i forgot this i, I hate <laughs> politicians trying to convince me that they're real humans because i know they're not they're lizard people so <laughs> <laughs> all right q and all conspiracy 
but yeah no oh. it's it's i think we'll leave this point of the uup uh it's quite a fun one there is mike nasbitt robin swan and now steve aiken all ex-leaders of that party mm-hmm. and they're all still involved with it which i think is all right a fascinating tale of the UUP's leadership woes <laughs> in the last <laughs> few years yeah you don't usually see that it's actually fairly weird um so i guess you want to talk about uh restrictions now the, the lifting of them a bit happier news not that what i mean i guess what we've talked about before is relatively depending on where you're coming from it's probably happy <laughs> but yeah 24th of may we've got a confirmed set of a uh, new uh what would you call it like lifting of restrictions i uh, easing easing um, of restrictions easing yeah. of restrictions we've got uh do you want me just to run through kind of the main ones yeah Okay, so we've got indoor household visits allowed, up to six people, no more than two households, overnight stays permitted, indoor hospitality allowed with six pints, people. Pints, pints. And the main thing about that is also unlimited households um, in terms of like those six people, so we can all stop lying about living together whenever you go out drinking. Hotels, B&Bs, and you know, travel are, are opening, tourist venues are also opening. Uh, that's also cinemas, galleries, museums, uh, museum arcades, and bingo halls, if that's your thing. Like, um, There's also a removal of stay-at-home stay message, libraries opening, you can do indoor group activities, group, group exercises, I mean. Uh, 500 spectators at outdoor sports and increase the number of allowed indoor gatherings, subject to venue risk assessment. And also, I think there's, I don't know if the list has been released yet of countries we're able to go to, or if it's just been copy and paste from the England list of places we're allowed to go to. But I know that I there's it, going to be an announcement about that as well. Yeah, I think uh, from what I've read in uh, back of journalists, it's going to be Marion, England, yeah. essentially, which isn't a bad thing for the whole UK. And when Ireland maybe starts allowing more travel, we'll all across these islands sort of keep similar Yeah, the travel restrictions. Um, Portugal's no, really going to see, like, I mean... It's going to be great for the tourism industry of Portugal, but it's also just going to be horrific for the locals to, to just say yeah. 20 million, like English, English, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh people just show up to their door. Getting uh, the cheapest beer that they can. Oh, you got to love it. But no, I, I think this is great. We're, we're getting back to normality. Exactly. We can go finally watch some live football, Matt. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. Going to get to watch some... I don't well, probably not yet, but get to see it, go to like a live music venue, get the have a yeah. drink inside, get the just walk into like a library or museum. And <laughs> even that seems like a like a gift at this point. Do you think this is are we going at the right speed? Is this good for yeah, you? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a good speed. You know, somebody who's personally been awfully affected by lockdowns and yeah, restrictions. Um, I think, I think this is in time i think it's fine obviously we have to be very uh, aware of the indian variant that's uh, might be causing some trouble yeah but look go out to enjoy yourselves still be safe keep your social distance but don't be afraid to rake some pints back into you and make a photo of yourself on Saturday <laughs> night at the same time you know so yeah i i'm, I'm i think it's i think it's a grand time yeah yourself uh, do you think it's too soon or um well, I, I, I see the the critique that some businesses have had in terms of not being told in advance or not getting kind of the, the notice needed because it is obviously a very short amount of time four days basically you kind of get the actual confirmation 
it does feel like a very short amount of time to actually have, have to prepare for like you know let's say you're a place that hasn't done indoor stuff for like five months and you've got all your do- your seats now outside and yeah. now you're there like well what do we do about the inside we felt that maybe we would have like a little bit more time to do it uh, so i appreciate that but i think that it's the more logical and the more uh if uh, it might not be the best economic way of doing things but it is probably the best way of doing things whenever you're looking at like kind of the human cost or like the the possibility of having to go into another uh lockdown which no one wants is by actually just like doing it off the data rather than doing it by dates and like looking at you know what the infection rates are like and what's you know going on going on with that kind of stuff so i yeah. kind of actually whenever everyone's complaining saying why aren't we like opening up like england is i was there like because we're doing it like the right way so that hopefully if we do it this right way we're going to end up not having to go into another lockdown um you, you were very critical of uh of the english way of doing it you said yeah. that having an actual date was very naive well just like freedom I, days are not calling it yeah like it's just uh i i, I it's something that I've, re- I've recognized quite a lot with the current english government is there's kind of a seeking to please rather than you know make the right decision it's kind of we're, we're going to do the very nice short-term thing but it's not necessarily going to be the actual thing that needs to be done. And we're not going to make the hard decision, but we all are. So, you know, going to take, you know, we're going to like mess up every, you know, other step of the pandemic process, but we're going to like make you happy by giving you like a free lunch that, yeah. you know, then means that you have to go into another, another lockdown. Cause that's probably one of the things that contributed to this all having to go into another lockdown was, you know, everyone going out and just breathing the same air within like every restaurant in Belfast. Like it wasn't, wasn't the smart move um no, so i, I prefer no. like being smart with it and then being able to have a, like an actual easing rather than just having like this temporary easing and then having to go back in because we all were just too dumb to you know actually see that we were all just too short term in our thinking um maybe but yeah i don't know i think that I, I could be proven wrong and england might you know be just fine and with the vaccine programs all of us have been so successful that yeah. Now it's all looking like it might be peachy keen, but we'll see how this Indian variant goes, and hopefully, hopefully we all just do get to go wherever we want by, by the time it's June. I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully we'll be able to. Hope, hope. I really hope the scythe um gets up to the same speed as us yeah. soon as well, because you know, ah, oh, we are we all share an island. We need everybody to be at the same pace so we can really yeah. both open up because what we might see, and we have seen it. Is that if we open up sooner and we get to do more things, we're going to see more from the south come on up. And that, I'm not, that's not a, I'm not trying to, you know, say that in a demeaning way yeah. or hurt anybody, but it's just the reality of it. That's oh, so very true. Like, it needs to be done responsibly. But uh, I guess if we are talking about the south now, do you want to talk about the uh, the uh, housing bill that's recently went through? It's kind of the most, well, I mean, outside of the HSE kind of, Cyberhack, uh, which cyber is crazy. Which was, which was mad. I mean, we can speak about that for a second if you really want to. But I, I just, just let people know that the, the health yeah. service down in the south is hacked and hackers are holding information to ransom to the government. The, yeah. the only crucial thing I would say there is they don't believe this is politically motivated. It's just a cash grab. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's cyber terrorism, essentially. It's, it's shocking. I think the general message was what it was, wasn't it? There's basically no point in paying them as well. If you did pay them off, not to release it, they would just sell it on to someone else. And then they would just release it so that they're kind of in a, 
I guess it's nice that the decision has kind of been made for them where they just don't need to, you know, even pay the money and they're just there like, we'll release it if you know, release it. Well, I don't know if they're going to say that. They're not going to say release it. <laughs> but I, I just mean that, you know, paying them isn't the right option because if you pay them, then you're just going to let them just go off and do it, give it to someone else and they'll just release it instead of them releasing it. So you don't negotiate with terrorists. No, no. Yeah. But yeah, um, housing bill, do you, do you want to explain what it is? Give a bit of background to it. I, you, did you read the bill? Uh, I've read a couple of uh, summaries of it and uh, haven't read all of it. That's all right. So just... I'm not uh, the most. What's what's the, the basics? Right. Okay. So let me try and get this down. So the bill is in, I think it's four parts. Uh, if I forget something, uh, I apologize. <laughs> okay. It goes, so basically it's an attempt to kind of like, just give you like general overview of what the, the bill is trying to do. So trying to make it, it's trying to give people in the South, more affordable housing in general, kind of increases supply of affordable housing. Cause obviously there's a massive issue down South with uh, foreign companies or not foreign companies, foreign investment coming in, buying Irish property, uh, outpricing, you know, kind of everyone out of places like Dublin and making it very difficult for anyone to kind of become a first time house buyer or even just find property in general. It's very difficult in, in the South. So this bill is going to tackle that by doing four things. At least that's what they say. Um, so first is I'm trying to think of what, what the first, the, the best one to go with first is. So I think it's over three years. They're going to try building 6,000 affordable houses. Uh, these are not going to be social houses. They're going to be done by housing associations in the South. Uh, so not very many, 6,000, but it's something. Um, the second part would be the, no, this is the really confusing one to describe. It's a cost rental model, which is they are going to have a scheme of houses which are priced by the cost it takes to build, maintain, and um, something else, the property. <laughs> so it, it's not renting it at market price, but more no. so the, to upkeep the property, essentially. Basically, uh, and I think they said 400. They want to see tendencies like this in 2021 and kind of expand it over time. I think that okay. is also one, though, that might, uh, for one thing, I think the price of it actually might change depending on how the economy goes. But I also think that the, that the scheme itself will change depending on how it goes through kind of the legislative process. Um, I guess and are all these prices uh, state-owned uh, at the start? Um yeah, I think they will be. Actually, that gets to another one of the points, which is the shared purchase equity scheme. Mm-hmm. This part of the scheme kind of is about getting first-time buyers a kind of more access, trying to give them better accessibility to the market. So they're going to, so the government is going to uh, take part equity of the uh, of a first-time buyer's house, which would be like around, 20, I think the max is 20%. Okay. Um, that also then comes with the help to buy tax break, which get which takes away 10% of the, I think, I think it's just 10% of the overall price, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. Um, so that would say then, I think it's around, will that be 30%? Uh, hopefully you might see, you know, price drop there is also a regional price cap that i think is coming yes, 
I don't know is if that's part of the actual. Part. I don't think that's actually part of this bill. I think it might be part of some another bill, isn't it? Yes, it's part of another bill. Yeah, and I think I it's know. a fascinating bit of policy. Yeah, in the do terms. Want, do you want me just yeah, finish can... the last one? Uh, oh yeah, sorry. The last it. part, and then the fourth and final part is uh, the bill will require ten percent of new developments to be ring fenced for affordable housing as well as the existing 10% for social uh, housing. Uh, but yeah, do you want to go go and talk about the uh, price cap? Yeah, I just I just really want to talk about how I think it's a very interesting bit of policy. And I, I think it's a step in the right direction. I really do. I think price caps to help control the market and help those buyers is a great step in the right direction. The only thing I would say, though, is it's like a speed limit people see it as a target yeah you know yeah. and i i really do wonder if you're just going to see these especially in dublin 450,000 euro houses just going to be the norm well, i mean that's not really even it's not it's not really a cap is it half a million <laughs> like that's just that's that's still unaffordable and well i i think in other areas it's still like around 200 250,000 yeah which is, I mean, in comparison to the North, that is extortionate. I mean, it's, I don't understand how they expect anybody of, you know, a lower income to even imagine taking out a mortgage on any of those properties, which I think is where it comes politically, which I, 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 I was watching the Inside uh, Politics podcast, and they kind of mentioned about the fact that there is like kind of an idea of this possibly being a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael kind of, not that this is the point of, them doing this price cap or this like you know piece of policy in general uh but that uh you know there's an issue with even just the middle class now again getting, getting you know housing yeah. and Sinn Féin obviously taking a very like forward position on housing so if they're losing votes to Sinn Féin even from the, the middle class they're probably there now a lot of Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil people are there thinking we need to now make we need to now provide affordable housing for the middle class so they come back and actually start voting for us because yeah. they're not first-time home first-time homeowners, you know, will be kind of down the path of now becoming probably more conservative as kind of just goes with, like, owning a house and, you know, getting a wee bit older and, you know, the kind of parts of life that, you know, you used to see of you get a wee bit older, you become a little bit more conservative, you have a house, you have kids, you have, like, tax that you need to pay and all that kind of stuff. You don't <laughs> like change because you, you you need a more stable foundation, yeah. which house essentially is a stable foundation for your life. But then obviously now in Ireland, like a lot of people don't even look like they're going to have like homeownership. <laughs> so now yeah. even the middle class, even like, you know, people who are, you know, relatively well off. So, but then that comes to this issue that this policy as, you know, we were kind of going through those. I think you can almost, I mean, very little to do with social housing there. Very little to do with um, a massive expense, like we said, six thousand houses. Yeah, it's not. I mean, that's nothing. So, like, what are you actually doing for like the people who, you know, are in the working class in the in the south? What are you doing for the people who you know really have suffered during the whole uh, housing crisis and ever since two thousand eight? These people who've just been kind of continuously pushed down, especially in Dublin and areas like that, where housing has become yeah. an absolute travesty. That this bill does nothing for that. Yeah, I read an article. If you were two nurses working down in Dublin, yeah, even on these affordable housing schemes, you still couldn't get a mortgage. Which, yeah, when you when you work in a state p- 
paid job, you should be at least be able to enter the housing market. I'm sorry, that that is just a basic rule I think a society needs to function on. You should be at least able to get on the very low end of the housing market in the place where you work. And your job's wages should reflect that. Is this an issue of a bill not going far enough or is this just like a, is this just part of like the, the, the kind of annoying part of um, parliamentary politics that is that you don't ever get kind of these big, you know, sweeping changes. You kind of have to deal with these kind of piecemeal uh, efforts. Do you think that's what this policy is? It's like, it's like a start and that hopefully it's a start, more happen. Which is great. And I think that they're actually trying this is fantastic, but I, I would yeah. side on Sinn Féin on this. It doesn't go far enough it doesn't at all. Go, yeah. It doesn't make oh. any real difference. Oh. Uh, the part about piecemeal, yeah, it is piecemeal. I'm, I've, it's, it's too little too late in many regards for a whole generation of people. There's, uh, again, another anecdotal story I read in the Irish Times. Guy training to be a solicitor. He's going to be qualified end of this year. He's in his mid-twenties. Still lives with his parents. He says yeah. once he's fully qualified as a goddamn solicitor, he can't afford a house. He's gonna to have, to have to live with his parents for years. Yeah, I'm sorry. That, it's just a joke. Yeah, and there was another bit. This, you know, I think for most of our our listeners are from are from the north, so I'll put this into context. Context. Imagine a house in the Holy Lands. It's you say you buy for one hundred and ten thousand in twenty eleven. In Dublin, that same house sold for half a million there just two weeks ago. How is, is anybody, <laughs> how is anybody supposed to get on this housing market if you yeah. wanted? And here's the thing with um, the Republic, especially, it's Dublin centric and near enough all its its jobs and economic output. Yeah, the the North is the same as well, obviously with Belfast to some extent, but Dublin it's heightened more so. I mean, not only that, it's it's generally foreign countries who use it as a tax haven who yeah you know i mean there is definitely i'm sure a large part of those companies is actually irish you know employment but i'm sure a decent chunk of it as well is probably people who are come who are being brought over from america to like do work or yeah are being brought over from the uk to do work or whatever so it's not even like this it, these these companies are putting proper they are putting investment into ireland but they're not it's kind of the idea of like they're not trickling down any of this money into you know the places where it needs to be. There's, as we all know, trickle down economics doesn't work. Yep. You know that, and the while you know Ireland can kind of boast like a very high GDP, it's it doesn't translate for like an awful lot of people because that money isn't going to the places where it needs to go, which can be said about a lot of places. So it's not like it's just an Ireland issue, um, but just in terms of the housing issue, which we're talking about now, that clearly is a part to play in the fact that for so long foreign foreign direct investment has been used not to actually spread the wealth in northern or in the south but to kind of culminate at the top and kind of just keep it in a circle of not just being at the top of ireland but being in the top and going to the top of other countries and then staying at the top of other countries and then coming back to ireland and then going over to america and staying at the top of america you know it's yeah it's kind of just being a cog in a system of just not having any money go to where it probably should be going I know this will probably go against most of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's maybe economic outlook, but I really think they should have banned all vulture funds coming and buying swaths of Irish property. Yeah. 
I genuinely believe that because it's it's just not fair. They're 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 just flipping houses. There's no there's real no real economic input that they're doing yeah. there. They're not providing a service. They're just flipping houses. I see how it's dev- it would have been difficult to. I see how it would have been difficult to ban that. How? Because uh, I don't even know how you would put that into legislation to something. Yeah, it, it's a it's a um, bit out there, like. But I do generally agree with the sentiment. <laughs> like, yeah. I agree with the sentiment of like needing to change the system and needing to change how that those things work. I just don't know how you actually put that into place without having to, you know, you know, partially probably break the the, the property system as it is right now in Ireland. Which is maybe why then we look at this bill and we're like, well, maybe that's a start. Maybe this is a place to start. But then it, even in, in a starting point, I think the starting point even isn't the right starting point. Like I would have liked to see other things possibly being started here as opposed to... You're 100 meters behind the start line. Yeah. And you've moved maybe 10 meters closer to it, but you're still 90 meters behind. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it, it's difficult to watch. Because um, just, it just feels like such a... I, I mean, this does bring us on to a question which I think we, our generation has continuously had to ask itself um, whether that even as you know millennial or Gen Z, whichever you identify as, like, <laughs> do, is there just like an acceptance of the fact that that kind of like white picket fence dream is just not an attainable thing for us anymore? Is are we even like is our, is us even hoping about for that in the new world that we live in? Just like a just a fanciful kind of callback to like what we watched whenever we were kids. I know for my for my dad, he bought his first house when he was 25 as a mechanic and lorry driver. Yeah. By himself. I work I in public really, affairs, yeah. you work in law, and we were both renting. Yeah. Well, I'm very low level law. So, so you're still like... in law. You're still in law. I don't care. Yeah, okay. I remember my mom saying the price that she bought her first house at, and I was there like, that feels like it would take me like two years of saving to reach that amount like it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be like a ridiculous well not two years of saving i'm being facetious there but i mean it, it would not have been a ridiculous target with the money that she was talking about having to buy a house it would have been having like a, a semi-reasonable job and you know just saving for a wee bit in advance and that would have got me probably there to like actually being able to buy a house here i mean that, that does take me back to the question is it realistic for is it are we just calling back to something that doesn't exist anymore. I think in Northern Ireland, it's still somewhat attainable. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, it's it's getting harder, though, by the week. Um, look at look at the amount of property prices have shot up in the last year. It's by over 7%. Yeah. You know, and you can't do it by Turn your own. Turn up and like... Yeah, I don't think you could do it on your own anymore. I genuinely believe that. I think you need to be with somebody. Yeah. Or else you're going to have to live out in the middle of the sticks. So um, I, th- I think the, ind- the idea of an individual buying a house is gone yeah. but the idea of two people buying a house i think is still relative and i say this relatively achievable mm-hmm. still very 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 challenging and definitely harder than it was a generation or two ago yeah but two half the way decent jobs and i think you'd be able to get that but for those maybe in the more working class uh fields and lower incomes brackets i doubt it's definitely a challenge yeah i mean so i'm looking at a Right now, I've I've got a post that we made a couple of weeks ago about property pill, and this is for the north, obviously not for the south. But uh, I'm looking at this is for the quarter one of the 2021 report that they did on how much the housing prices increased in certain areas. 
So this is comparing the first quarter of 2021 to the first quarter of uh, 2020. So the housing price in Belfast has went up 7.2%. It looks like Strangford has went up 7.3%. Uh, it looks like Port of Armagh has went up 7.3%. Uh, South, South Down, like very South Down, has went up 3.7%. I mean, Fermanagh's went down 3.5%. I don't know what's happened in Fermanagh. Mass <laughs> exodus. Mass exodus, apparently. Um, and then, yeah, most other places are either stayed the same or gone up 1% or 2%. So it's just uh, Lagan Valley's went up 1.9% if you're interested. Um, it's also the most expensive part of the world to buy a house now in uh, Northern Ireland, Lagan Valley. Is it really? Um, yeah. I guess average it's, it's, average. it's so uh, accessible to Belfast and it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's just, it, I don't understand how the prices kind of went up so, so much over a pandemic where pretty much no one's been, well, I guess now we're out of it. So maybe more people, maybe the supply is, you know, relatively the same, but the demand's going up very high at this stage because we're out of the pandemic somewhat. People are looking to move out. It's just depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. It's not Look, what you want to say. Is there one last topic you want to bring up? Um, I think we wanted to touch on slightly alliances. Um, yes, alliances. New, new green deal sort of policy green that they deal. brought out. It goes into a good bit of detail. It um, about very, what it wants. very in-depth. It's one of the most impressive policy documents that's come from a Northern Irish political party in the last few years. Yeah. Um, I think I'll give you just some of the key stats or what I find the most interesting from it. The creation of 50,000 green jobs. The only problem is they don't really specify where those are going to be in. I think they do specify where. They're just the issue because they do say, like, oh, broadband and investment, uh, environmental governance jobs, education infrastructure, care jobs, green economy. The issue is, I think the issue is how. Yeah. how they're going to come about getting these jobs from those areas. Um, and I wonder if it's going to be yeah. relabeling other sectors that are already existing to these green jobs, essentially, yeah. is how they're going to reach that uh, figure. The other big one, which it's, it's not really a sexy topic, but I feel like it should be talked about more, is mm. they want to see more north-south electrical interconnectors and improving yeah, the all-island electricity grid. And while that sounds really boring and really dull, it's so important for these next few years that are coming up. And I would just quote, maybe not the number one reason, but a mm-hmm. very high up reason. All electric vehicle sales from 2030. We, you know, we're going to, yeah. the grid needs to be developed for that. Now we are so far behind it already that we're playing, we're already playing catch up. The amount of charging stations we're going to need to have for a population of 2 million in populated areas is going to be ridiculous. In rural areas, you're going to have to have it too. Um, the only way we can do that is on an all-island basis, working together. And to help manage those demands, we need to have electricity reduction centers across the island. Yeah. Um, so let's say, for example, the southeast is using loads of electricity. Um and they can't produce it all in the southeast, maybe up in the northeast, we can deliver them more power and vice versa. So it was really, really, really good to see a political party mention that and talk about it. Yeah. Um, other issues were, you know, I think net zero by, what was it, 2045, 2050? I think they moved it ahead from 2050 by a little bit. Or is that in the green? Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I think, yeah. There's so many interns. Yeah, there's just so many different people who have said so many different dates at this point. Um, but yeah, I think theirs was like 2045 or something, yeah. Um, I, I can read out some of the other things they've got. So they, one of the ones is they wanted to regulate the gig economy and home working. 
because they see home right. working as being like a massive thing that's going to come into place but needs actual regulation um they want to eliminate zero hour contracts um they want to uh repeal unnecessary measures such as a bedroom tax um they made a point of kind of uh, how, how would you uh they they want to take a somewhat Keynesian response to the current uh, economic crisis in comparison to the kind of austerity of 2008. Yeah. Um, they they kind of want to do more of like, we need to invest more in the economy to kind of see the economy move forward as opposed to kind of the 2008 austerity model, which was spend less, kind of withdraw, hope that, you know, we can kind of like save up the money to then go forward. And uh, it's, it's a difficult one to explain in very short, um, <laughs> in very short paragraph, but yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of one part of it. They also specify them with a lot of research done. They want new skill strategies. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's definitely a very wide ranging kind of piece of policy or not piece of policy, a, uh, a policy plan, I guess, um, mm -hmm. a document that kind of goes into like very specifics of what they want to see, what they want done, how they want it done. Sometimes they are a little bit light on the how, I'll be honest, but I, I still appreciate, you know, the fact that they are being very, um, what, what is the word? They're being not optimistic. They're being very adventurous with, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of ways they want to go with. And, you know, I think that's good from political party. I don't think you should always, always, I think in these kind of things, you should be adventurous. Mm -hmm. I think if you're, you know, this is like your ideal world and this is how you want it to go. Well then fine, you know, give it to us and we'll, you know, see, and hopefully, you know, you can do some parts of it. I'm sure that, you know, it would take them an awful long time to actually do, do every single part of what they're saying. But I, I, I think it's, it's kind of just following with what we've seen in the past couple of years with Alliance of them moving to this kind of like su such a definite left position. I know they, I think back whenever we were kids, there was kind of like a little bit more of a centrist kind of feeling around Alliance. Yeah. And this is like a massive commitment to, cause it's not just a green document. It is also basically a, it's a UBI doc. It's a UBI doc. It's a left economic doc. It's a it's a left social doc. Um, so it, it's a very much just a commitment towards a, a very not a very left wing ideology. I don't want to say it's very left. It's moderately it's, left. It's moderately left, and it is fairly um, fairly unforgiving in their leftness. If you know what I mean, they're not you know, making any concessions here. They're not saying, oh, well, we also want to do this right-wing thing. No, it's like, generally, this is a left. I This is, this is a very left-wing um, idea piece that you could have probably seen come out of, you know, the Corbyn administration during whatever he, not the Corbyn administration, the Corbyn uh, leadership <laughs> of the Labour, uh, the Labour Party during his kind of tenure um, of leading them. Um, I, I literally think probably some of the ideas actually were probably ripped from his um, yeah. manifesto, yeah. maybe. <laughs> like, uh, what was your thoughts on kind of like the, the non-economic or non-environmental parts of it? I thought it was adventurous, as yeah. you said. Not good detail in what they wanted, not really how they're going to do it uh, again, yeah. as you said. But look, I'm glad they did it. I'm glad it's something out there. Yeah, It's taking it's taking away from that whole green and orange thing all the time, just focusing on those issues and providing voters, you know, an actual, an actual vision of policy. Mm -hmm. about how they want to see this part of the world run which i have to i have to applaud them for yeah i mean they're they're unabashed about it and like you can criticize whether they're going to get it done but at the very least they've set out as you said what they want done and how they want how they want their party to kind of what they want their party to be going forward i would guess if, if this document is to be believed 
um, which is like a very, it's, it's not a massive difference to what we've seen the past couple of years, but it is a difference to what we've seen historically from Alliance Party. Like in the longer history of the Alliance Party, it is a different a different kind of way of doing things, I guess. Yeah, just just keeping on that, uh, that green eco theme. I think we'll actually just move over to the Green Party and Claire Bailey's private members bill on a climate change bill. Um, we bit controversial um, from the agricultural community. They say it's too much, too soon. Um, what do you think, Matt? Do you think it was fair in its uh, its vision? I think, I think it is generally fair. I think it's a... I understand where the agriculture community is coming from in terms of them seeing it probably as just a, 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 maybe they see it as a disregard for them. But I think that in terms of the client or the climate goals that we have, uh, at some stage, you do just have to make a, a tough uh, a tough decision. You have to, at some stage, address like the the largest, you know, uh, emissions area in Northern Ireland, which I believe is agriculture. It is. Um, so I, I do find it hard to believe that we can do it without there being some pain involved, um, that we can like reduce it by the levels that we need to reduce it in the next, you know, number of years without there being like some things that need to be done quite quickly or need to be done in a way that doesn't necessarily mean the best economically for some people, which is a hard thing to hear and which is not something that some people want to hear. But it's also hard to imagine an alternative where we get carbon free or emissions free by 2050 without having to make kind of the tough decisions that. But I, I almost think that it's a it's a starting point for the policy and it can be like changed and it will change if it is picked up as it goes through the legislative process. And it will probably be stripped of some of the kind of uh, more economically damaging parts which it might have in the agriculture community. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think it's. I'm glad the Stormont have finally got their act together and voted for a climate change bill in the very early stages. We're only past the second reading; has to go into committee stage now. Um, the rest of the UK got theirs in 2008, 2009 for Scotland. So we're we're way beyond late regarding this. And I would just say, if we had the targets that Claire had in. Now, back then, there would have been no complaints across the board. Yeah. So it's partly our own fault, really. That's all I'm going to say in that part. The other thing that I want to bring up and highlight to people is that this is a private member's bill. The executive, i.e. the Department for Agriculture, Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, will have to bring their own climate change policy forward because that was outlined under the new Jackie New Approach. Poots is very much in favor with the agricultural community. He agrees with their criticisms of it. So we're going to see a slightly different one come free. But judging by the amount of support that Claire's had, it was pretty much every party voted for it, bar the DUP and two UUP MLAs. I think this is going to be the one we're going to see forward. But obviously now with Edwin coming leader of the DUP, I think he's going to put more power behind it and this might be a real... It might, it'll be a real uh, voter push, especially in the more rural areas. Is this actually then maybe what, what maybe originally the, the intent from the Green Party was to try and attempt to push through a, that this was the kind of, this was them trying to push the executive to actually bring out their own climate um, strategy and that, uh, or climate change bill, that this was kind of their attempt to kind of like put it on the radar of people 
get enough like support from within the actual uh, from within Stormont, and that then you would kind of force the hand of the executive, maybe. Or am I being like too tactical about it? Do you think they just actually want this climate climate change bill? No, they obviously want it, and yeah. I think for them, seeing you know a very right wing uh, agriculture minister who favors hmm. the, yeah. the heaviest pollutants or the heaviest polluters. Uh, having the most polluting industry in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. who he's quite chummy with. Um, I think it's a great bit of policy initiative by Claire here to push it free and yeah. set new targets. You know, maybe, you know, it, it, it's a great push. That's all I'm going to say. She's played a blinder here. She's got, the, she's got the rest of the assembly behind her. So, look, it's it's we've been so behind on this to actually see a decent bit of policy come through Stormont regarding this is incredible. I'm just, I'm, I'm very happy to see, oh, yeah. see it come through. Hopefully it does go through and hopefully we actually see some progress being made on this sooner rather than later. Yeah, love to see it. Look, I think we've talked about absolutely everything in the past week there and we've got all the major points covered. So well done us. <laughs> We're great. We're absolutely fantastic. This has been quite a long pause, but if you're still listening, thank you very much. Um, I think we'll just just to say, we've got a few more guests coming on soon. Um, Stuart Dixon from the Alliance Party, we just confirmed there. Yeah, we'll be talking. We'll be talking actually about Alliance's uh, Green Manifesto and New Deal, uh, the, their energy strategy, which is it's going to be good. Hope hopefully we'll have Claire Bailey on as well, so we can talk to her about the bill and maybe Matt, you can push some of those more technical questions to her, those more in depth analysis. So it'll be good to hear her opinion. But yeah. It's all going well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Viewership is up. Or listen, yeah, viewership is up on the Instagram. More people are listening. We're nearly we've nearly broke a thousand followers on the on the Instagram. So that's going really well. And then to all our lovely Twitter folks, all of you are so nerdy and so interested in politics because you're all very high quality and all very intelligent when you do follow us. So that's great. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>